Well, good morning. My name is Brian. I'm on the board here. And I also have the thrill and privilege of opening the word for us occasionally. Next week, Pastor Steve will have finished his lifeguard rotation. He'll be back on this side of the wall. And he will be leading us deeper into the word of God. But this summer, we're going through Psalms and focusing on songs of celebration and praise. And if you're my age, you probably have a song ringing in the back of your head when you read this one. Come, let us worship and bow down. Colette was a French artist, and she said, there are no ordinary cats. If you love cats, you know what that means. We can also say there are no ordinary psalms. I mean, there's patterns, but they're all very different, and every now and then, it really throws a curveball at you. And this is one of those. But let's start with the first part. It's really, it almost seems like two psalms tacked together, but it's not. There is one message. But let's start with the fun part. At verse 1 that we've already heard, Come, let us sing to the Lord our God. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. If we could move to the, the one with Psalm 1 alone. A couple words to look at in there. Let us sing. It's fun to sing. That's why we do it in our cars when no one else can hear us. And every now and then, well, in the old days of radios, every now and then you'd pull up beside another car at the stop sign and they're singing the same words. You know you're listening to the same radio station. Singing is a wonderful release. Let's make a joyful noise. Yes, there are issues. Yes, there is sadness and sorrow. But sometimes we have to make a joyful noise. And joy isn't always a response. Sometimes it's a responsibility. I choose to rejoice. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I love when that term is used for God. Unchanging, steady. You can stand on it. You can hide in its shade. God is our rock. He's there the same every time we come back to him. The rock of our salvation. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Wow. Let's say you wake up one morning. It's a beautiful day, and you'll feel really good. And you think about living in Canada, and you're thinking about amazing health care. You're thinking about good highways, good schools, and, and, and you know that in a lot of the world, it's not even close, and you're just so thankful. So you get on the phone, and you phone up the Prime Minister of Canada just to say thanks. Yeah. Mm. You might get a secretary somewhere who will say, I'll pass that on for you. It's much better if you send him an email. Okay, fine, I'll send him an email. Hey, how you doing? It's a great day to be in Canada. I just wanted to thank you so much. Your email will be delivered with a thousand others that day. Most of them probably not quite as friendly. But it will only get to a secretary. And those secretaries will go through them, and maybe they'll pass on four or five to the prime minister, who may have a chance to look at them, because that's the way it is. 
He's busy, and in one sense, you're not worthy to just wander into his office. He'd get nothing done if we just wandered in to say, hey, I just want to say thanks. <laughs> we get to enter the presence of God. There's no waiting line. There's no waiting room. There's no secretary to intercept us. We have direct access. That is amazing. We don't have that with our boss half the time. Sometimes our parents are busy. With God, it's direct, and we just walk into his presence. Wow. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Yeah, let's come up with some great psalms. Let's sing some stuff. Let's think about the things that he's done. I forget the exact words to the one we sang, but the, 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 the thousand names in a million ways. Let's come up with as much as we can to praise God. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God. He's not just a supreme spiritual being. He's good. He's, he's so good at it. He's great. And he's a king above all gods. He rules the universe in his mercy and justice. No living creature, no spiritual being is outside of his authority. He's a great king above all gods. Verses 4 and 5. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. This is good imagery. And it, it's accurate in a sense, but sometimes we, you know, we need to see God in, in kind of a human form sometimes. So here, here's a good way. The depths, in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. How deep is the earth? Well, you can go halfway and then you're coming out the other end. But what's down there? We don't really know. I mean, we, we scratch the surface, but there are no surprises to the Creator. He knows what's going on. The heights of the mountains. Now, many of us have been in airplanes. We've seen mountains from above, which is pretty cool. But remember, this is written to a people who haven't done that yet. To them, mountains are, wow. Climbing the mountain is hard. But God's just there all the time, hanging out above the mountains, down in the depths of the earth. Yep. You can't escape him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Well, that pretty much covers everything. The sea, he made it. You know, there's a lot of creation stories and a lot of cultures that have that image. That the world began as water, and God brought forth the land. And we can sit down at the beach and watch the tide come and go like it has done for thousands of years and think, wow, it only goes that far out and it only comes that far in. What an amazing machine. God made it. His hands formed the dry land. It's not just land, it's where our food comes from. It's what we walk on. It's what we build our houses with. We can't imagine anything in our lives that doesn't come from water and land. Every chemical, every machine, everything we wear and eat is a result of water and land. 
designed by the Creator as part of our lives. So, verse 6, of course, oh, come, let us worship. Let us declare His worth. Let us bow down. Yes, He deserves that. We need to do it to remember who we are in His presence. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Sometimes when we struggle mowing our relationship with God, we need to come back to this. Does he really understand how I'm feeling? Does he really understand what's going through my mind? Does he know what's happening in my life? Yeah, yes, he does, because he made you. He designed your mind, your spirit, your soul. He chose you to have the right combination of those things. He knows you better than you will ever know yourself. He's your maker. Got a problem with your car? Read the book by the guys who built it. You know, get your own manual out. Got a problem with your life? Read the book by the guy who made it. He knows your thoughts. And more importantly, he doesn't make you as a machine. He made you as his own child. So it's, you, it's his mind, his heart, as we were formed as in his image. He's our maker. We need to remind ourselves of that. That's who we are. Verse 7, the first half. For he is our God. Okay, it's amazing that he made the earth with everything we need to sustain life. And it's amazing that we're allowed to thank him for it personally, face to face. But he never goes off and does something else. He is our God. Huh. You've got a house, you've got a car, you have a God. You may not always be thinking of him, just like you're not always thinking about your house and your car. And you had to go out and buy the house and the car. God said, I give myself to you. I will be your God. I'm yours. Oh. He is our God. We're the people of his pasture. I love this image. Again, remember, most of the people reading this at the time would have lived in an area where there were sheep and goats and animals everywhere. It was just day to day. I mean, you and I think of traffic and cars as part of our daily experience. For them, it was animals running around and bleeding and leaving things on the ground. And that image just filled our mind. We are the people of his pasture. Just look out. Look at those cattle. Look at the sheep. They don't really know what's going on. As long as they've got grass and water, they're happy. Well, we're the sheep in his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. We don't always think about it. We often don't see the big picture. But if we've got grass and water, we're happy. God provides for us. It's nice to have a gentle farmer who really cares about his animals. We're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So far, this psalm has got this amazing picture of God in his fullness as creator with some of the details of his creation. And so far, this psalm has called us to participate in that, be a part of it, to respond to it, to God's face, to walk into his presence and enjoy the moment. 
And we do that sometimes in our lives. I hope you do that when we're, when we're worshiping, that you realize the closest person to you in that pew is God himself, and he's hearing every word. And he likes it. He enjoys it. Because we mean it. It's a wonderful thing. So far, the psalm has just made our lives seem rich and beautiful and easy. And this is where it flips on us. The second half of this verse, 7b. Let's take a look at that. Today, if you hear his voice. Oh. Do not harden your hearts. Oh. No, no, it doesn't erase the first part. We are still joyful and praising and looking at all the wonderful things and enjoying the wonderful things and waltzing into God's presence. But don't harden your hearts, as in Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to proof, though they had seen my work. It's a strange story, but let's take a look at it. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Shin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. This is part of the whole Exodus story where they're brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, to freedom, and they aren't so sure they like freedom, because there's not a lot of food out there in the wilderness, not a lot of water. They're not really sure what freedom means to them. It seems pretty bleak at this point. It seems like God has saved them from, you know, one of the most advanced cultures of the time to nothing. (laughs) Moving on. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. And did I read that whole thing? They they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. It's not a bad thing to ask for water, to say, "Um, Mo, we're kind of thirsty. But they quarreled. They were angry. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Is that a realistic assessment? Well, sure, because you're standing in the middle of a desert. Your kids are there crying, and the animals are... I mean, it's just not a good day. Realistically, judging by what you can see, it's a disaster. But how did they get there? How did these people get there? They saw plagues ravage Egypt, and they were protected by God. Symbolically, each of those plagues destroyed an Egyptian god and a Babylonian god. What they thought were the great powers had just been laid waste in the land of Egypt as the king of all gods proved them powerless. And and these people saw that. And the result of that was they got to leave Egypt on Passover night and go through the desert. And and, then they came up to the water and they thought, oh no. First they're complaining about all the sand and now there's water. Oh no, there's water. Well, you can't have both. 
And I think, oh, God can't save us from this. What are the miracles he just did? You see all the plagues that he just did? Well, yeah, but that was yesterday. We were young and full of hope back then. Look, this is real. So Moses lifted up his stick and the water goes. Then he walked through on dry ground. Okay, yeah, well, that was pretty cool. They get to the other side. They're complaining about food. God says, okay, I'll make it rain bread. Manna will fall. Okay, we'll see. And God does miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet each time there's a need, instead of remembering everything that God has done, they focus on the need. And more than once they say, did you bring us out here to let us die? And it sounds terrible. And yet, I think there are so many times for those of us that have been walking with Christ for years where we get there. Where we come to a point in our spiritual growth or a family crisis and we say, oh no, I'm on my own. God's left me here to die. And while it's not inhuman to think that, it's illogical to believe that. Because how did God get you here? Miracle after miracle after miracle. And so standing here, instead of just focusing on the disaster before you, take a look back. All those bridges, all those pathways, the parted water, the miraculous feeding. All right. Well, let's rejoice in that. Even though there's this disaster in front of us, let's rejoice in all that we've been through. Let's not get stuck in a position where we think that God is finished and we say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God, I have tried to obey you. Sometimes it's meant I've lost relationships. Sometimes it's meant I've lost money. Sometimes it's meant I've lost my job. I try to obey you, and now look where I'm at. I got nothing. Sometimes God lets us have nothing. So we're hungry for him. Carrying on with Exodus. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. You struck the Nile and it turned into blood. Lifted it up and the Red Sea parted. Take that stick. Behold, I will stand before you there on a rock at Horeb. And I kind of, I love, I don't know if this is part of God's sense of humor, but Moses is afraid of little rocks coming to kill him. They're going to stone me. God says, you want to deal with the rocks? Let's deal with the rocks. I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses is thinking, you got to be kidding. If I tell them this, they are going to tie me up and put me in a rubber tent, and I will never see the day. We're going to hit a rock with a stick, and then we're going to have all the water we need. You know how many people are out here? You know how many animals are just begging for water right now, and you want me to hit a rock with a stick? I don't understand you, God. But Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. There are the two words that we read in the psalm. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? God, are you here or not? God, can you hear me or not? God, thank you for all you've done, but today you ain't doing it. Are you here or not? Is the Lord among us or not? The word Massa means testing. It's not testing God to ask him for something. It's testing God to doubt him and say, you better prove yourself. The word Meribah means quarreling, fighting amongst yourselves, fighting with God. Is the Lord among us or not? So let's get back to Psalm 95. That's the story behind it. That's, you know, that God had done all these miracles. He'd shown his heart to these people, and they kept not really believing, just like us. But Psalm 95, let's get back and see what God says about that. In verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation. This is, this is a God of love, patience, kindness, gentleness, and he says, I loathed them. Oh, right, God is alive and he thinks and he feels and this was one of the reasons, although there were others, this is one of the reasons he told those people, sorry, you're not going to find your rest. You have pushed me too far. I loathe that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. In their heart. Not in their mouths. They still sing all the right songs. Not in their minds, they still know that they still know the Bible stories they learned as kids, but in their heart, in the depth of their being, they really don't believe that God is who He says He is. They really don't believe they need what God says they need, and they really don't believe God is going to provide what He knows they need. Hmm. They go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. They haven't taken the time to look at what God has done all along. They haven't taken the time to realize how God needs to prepare them and discipline them and train them. They don't look at the ways of God. They just look at their needs of the moment. Do you know the ways of God? Do you look at the ways of God in your life 20, 10, 5 years ago? Where He wants to lead you 5, 10, 20 years from now? Or are you just looking at what I need today? They have not known my ways, God said. And so in verse 11, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now it would be enough if God had just done the plagues in Egypt. It would have been enough if he had led them out. It would have been enough if he had parted the sea. Any of those things would have been enough to show God's power, his grace, his patience, his planning. It would have been enough if he'd just given them manna. I mean, it, 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 step by step, all of these things that God did, each one of them would have been enough, should have been enough for the people to know who he is. They never got there. It was all, what do I need now at this moment? God's not doing what I need. And so God said, okay, you get to live like that. You're choosing doubt and fear and anger. Go ahead. 
Spend the rest of your days in doubt and fear and anger. You've earned it. And so that generation never does see the promised land. They don't get to walk into the villages with empty houses just waiting for them. Fields perfect for their animals. Roads already built. They never got to see it. They spent the rest of their life in doubt and fear. Regret. And in their heart, not knowing the ways of God. My friends, that option is also there for us. If you've been in church long enough, you know the story. You know that Jesus died for you. You know that he did it out of love and compassion. You know that he gave you his spirit to teach you and train you and lead you and perfect you. You know that he gave brothers and sisters around you to support you and for you to support them. We know that story. But I wonder, now that I've seen a few people go ahead of me and a lot of people come behind me, I wonder how many times we get to this point where we just doubt Okay, yes, he died for me. Okay, yes, he shed his blood. Okay, yes, he gave his spirit. But I still feel sad. Why doesn't he stop me from feeling sad? We, we look at little things about today, and we forget where we came from. And sometimes I think God says, sure. You want to stay there? Sure. Go ahead. You want to live the rest of your life in fear and doubt, pitying yourself? clinging on to bitterness, not understanding what I did in that moment, but just thinking about what people did to you. You go ahead, if you really want to. If you don't want to enter my rest, okay. You earned it. I'm not suggesting that if we lack faith, we don't get to go to be with God forever. I'm talking about in this life, the rest that God promises the joy and the peace, and just the thrill of entering His presence. If we have resisted God and we have not known His ways in our hearts long enough, maybe sometimes He says, all right, I'll see you in heaven, but you obviously don't want to hear from me now. And that's sad. It's sad. And, and it, I look at my own life and I look at moments where I thought, wow, why did God still work in my heart after that? Why did he still lead me after I treated him like that? And I look at my own life and I think there were so many times when he could have said, that's enough, Brian. You can live out the rest of your life in fear, anger, and bitterness. I'll see you in heaven. But he didn't do that. Not because I deserve another chance, but because he's the chance giver. He's the rescuer. He's the redeemer. So this symbol of this generation that lacked faith and therefore didn't enter God's rest, it's a symbol for us, it's a warning, but man, God goes beyond it if we want Him to, if we let Him, if we stick with Him. But this is how the psalm ends. This psalm that began with, oh, we're going in God's presence, we're going to make songs, it's so happy, God does everything, He's so good, we get to go into His face and say, hey, how you doing, God? It ends with this, this verse. Verse 11, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Mic drop. 
Wow. So how do we take these two parts of the psalm and bring them together into one? Wow. Well, we have to remember this. True worship requires a right attitude and a foundation of faith. You really love somebody, yeah, that day you'll give them flowers. You're really thankful to somebody, oh, give them a little piece of chocolate. I mean, we respond with stuff, but you know, when we're responding to God, it's not because of how we're feeling at the moment, it's because we know that He is our rock and He doesn't change through the moments. And so when we are in the darkest time or whether we're in our happiest time, we still know to honor God. He has not changed the rock of our salvation. And we can do that because of our foundation of faith, but because we know who God is more than we know about ourselves. We know that we change it. God does not. A little quote from 2 Corinthians. Amazing quote that we could spend our whole life with this kind of bumper sticker theology if we need to. We walk by faith and not by sight. Huh. And it's a great image for the, that generation that went through the wilderness walking by sight. What they see? They see the problem, and they see that problem, and they see that problem, and they see that problem. They're not walking by faith. They're not thinking about who God is in the moment, where God is in that problem. They're just thinking the problem, the problem, the problem. And we can't get caught up with that in our own lives. Our, the things that happen to us are serious. But if we focus only on the things that happen to us, we're missing the whole point. And so we walk by faith. Faith allows us to say, God, that really hurts and I hate it. What do I do? Faith allows us to say, God, I really need this job, money, whatever it is, and I don't have it. What do I do? Faith allows us to take any problem back to the God who has made us through so many problems already. And we say to him, what do I do? Oh, by the way, you're the, you're the creator. You're the great king of all gods. You made the mountains and the depths of the earth. But what do I do? And we say it to God. We walk by faith and not by sight. That, that, that image just jumps out at me for the people wandering through the wilderness. Always looking at their life by sight. Never by faith. So Faith. But what, what price? What does faith cost? Okay, it would take a lot for you to have the ability to walk into the prime minister's office. You'd have to go through a whole, you know, thing of getting into the party and becoming a lead. I mean, you just have to go through a whole lot to have that opportunity. What does it cost for you and I to walk into the presence of God? Jesus had just finished a meal with his friends, one of his favorite meals, Passover. And they celebrated and they ate good stuff and they sang fun songs and they went out to pray. And then one of his friends betrayed him to the local weekend warriors, the local rent-a-cops. And they came with his torches and they grabbed him. And they dragged him off to a night of terror, going from here to there with these courts that were set up quickly because they really weren't ready for it yet. And he heard all kinds of people say all kinds of things about him. 
and say how bad he was. And he finally went to Pilate, the head of the government in that place. And Pilate said, yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with this guy. But see, because of political fear, Pilate said, if you want to do something with him, you go ahead. That wouldn't happen here, by the way. I mean, if I had a fight with a friend and we went to the police station, the police wouldn't say, yeah, we're not going to deal with it. Just go ahead and kill each other. <laughs> no. But here, the Roman leader in that area said to the people, yeah, you know, I wash my hands of it. You do what you want. So they did. And they tortured him. They had a cat of nine tails kind of thing that had strips of leather with glass and metal in the end, and they whipped it on his back till he no longer looked like a human from behind. And to mock him, they made him a crown, but this one was a crown of thorns, and they shoved it onto his skull as he bled. And then they led him outside the city, away from the temple, his dad's house, away from Jerusalem, this this city that he loved, that he, where, where he had watched Abraham and David, I mean, his town. And they dragged him out into the valley, and they made him carry this big chunk of wood, rough wood that probably smelled of the flesh of others that had carried it before him, but he fell because he was so exhausted. So they had someone else finish carrying it, and then they took him up to a hill, and they took big, ugly spikes and drove them through his wrists to put him onto that piece of wood, hoisted him up, and, and then put another spike through his feet. And he suffocated. That's how you die from crucifixion. You're hanging in your body cavity, just goes, you can't breathe. So you, you summon the strength to push your chest up, push your body up, grab a breath, and then collapse again. But of course, doing that is incredibly painful because you've lost so much blood. It's like pins and needles everywhere, and you're just fighting to live. And some people could last that way for a few days. But Jesus didn't, because he chose the time, the exact moment the ceremonial lamb was being slaughtered in the temple, in Jesus' house, his dad's house, the one that would symbolize the sins of the whole nation. At that moment, Jesus chose to give up his spirit. And they came around to see if everybody was dead, and some of the other guys were still living, so they broke their legs so they could no longer push themselves up, and they would just suffocate. Jesus, they said, nah, he's dead. Well, we got to do something. So they shoved a, pe a spear into his side, and all the fluids that had gathered in his body cavity came rushing out. And then they were going to bury him, get rid of the body, so there's no disease and all that stuff. But this rich guy said, put him in my tomb. And tombs were not what we think of tombs, not like the Pharaoh's tombs. Tombs then were like rooms with you know, wood or stone benches, and they would put the body there and wait until it had decayed, and then they would go in and collect the bones that were left and put them in a little box, and that box they would bury. So it was kind of two stages of burial. And they thought, well, that's what's going to happen to this guy. So they put him in this rich guy's tomb, laid him out there, and apparently he didn't like it because he got up and left. 
I've never heard Jesus complain about his lodgings any time in his life except that one. He said, yeah, not going to stay here. That's what it cost for you and me to say, hi, Dad, thanks for chocolate. That was the price for us to be able to walk into the holiness of God with joy and say, we got a new song for you. It's not very good, but we, we mean it. We're going to sing for you, okay? And he goes, okay, I'll listen. The price of our faith, the price of access into the holiness of God was what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't just a symbolic gesture. If we think that the death of Christ was just a symbolic gesture, we really are questioning the mental health of God, that he would let his son endure that just so we'd have this image in our minds. No, it was the blood of Christ is required for us to enter the holiness of God. Let's look at Hebrews 9 just for a second. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, or good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's comparing the tabernacle here, or even the temple, and he's saying, there, remember, like Scripture always said, those are just models of something real. And so he went through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of hands, that is, not of this creation. It's in the spirit world. And he entered once for all into the holy places. This brother of ours waltzed right in there and opened the way for us. How? Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How was that door blown wide open? Through the blood of Christ. Not by the blood of goats and calves, not by our efforts, not by our decision to be a little more religious. Christ did it. There's an old quote, I think I've said it before, and I, I probably should read it every day to myself. Spurgeon said it. He says, it's not your faith in Christ that saves you. And most Christians go, oh, but the Bible says we're saved by faith. Spurgeon says, it's not your faith that saved you. It's Christ that saves you. And your faith makes it available. And that's a good challenge because sometimes I fall back in a comfort zone and think it's okay. I believe the right stuff. I got the right faith. I'm okay. No. It's Christ on the cross that makes it okay. It's not about me and my religion and my efforts and the offerings I give to God. I'm in God's presence because of what his son did. It is only the blood of Christ that satisfies the holiness of God. If we think otherwise, then we're calling God a fool. If we expect to stand before God in the last judgment and say to him, yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but look at all I've done. You didn't need to let your son die. He said to give me a chance to be myself. We're telling God his son didn't need to die for me? Wow. Look out. The father loved his son. The death of Christ was not just a symbolic gesture. It was what was necessary for you and I to be able to walk in to the presence of God and say, Daddy, I'm home. 
And so we look at this psalm, this strange psalm that starts with a nice image of how we should worship God, why we should worship God, and ending by saying, but be careful. Don't forget why. Don't forget what gives you the right to enter there. It's because what God has done for you. All that he's done for these people to bring them out of Egypt and all that he's done for you to bring you out of the world of pain and suffering and anger and bitterness and say, rest. I want to give you my rest. Do you want it? I, I want to give you my rest. Please take my rest. It's a great psalm for that. It's not an ordinary psalm, but it's a challenging psalm. It's a sucker punch. It gets us into the first part thinking, oh, yeah, well, that's good, 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 good. And then it says, why are you there? What brought you into God's presence? What gives you the right to write a song for God? What gives you the right to thank God for anything? Oh, yeah, the blood of his son. The blood of his son. I want to end with just one other observation about this psalm that I think is worth going through. The words that this psalm is based on are important. They're the words us, our, and we. You know, culture's changing. God is always greater than culture. But in our culture, we got to the point where the individual seems like the most important thing. That's okay. But we have to go back into Scripture, and the language of Scripture reminds us that it's not me, it's us. Somebody once said, Jesus is not coming back for Christians. He's coming back for the church, one thing, the body. And we are not made to be individual. Even in our bodies at, in, the, in the Garden of Eden, God said, it's not, not good for that one individual to be alone. Well, the same is true spiritually. Our spiritual growth depends on being one of us, belonging to the body being involved with Christ. Us, our, we. That's the language. That's why the writings of the New Testament keep reminding us, urge each other onto good works, love each other, save the person who's falling. Women teach the, teach the young ladies, men teach the young men. These aren't just ways of making the church more, you know, run better. These are our spiritual requirements that as the body bathed in the blood of Christ, we urge each other on. We pick each other up. We lift each other up. We need to do it. We need to lift others and we need to be lifted. We're part of a spiritual body bathed in the blood of Christ. I'm going to ask the Yes. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we close. Prayer teams will be available as well. They'll be down here at the front, one at the back, if you want to sit in the pew, a little quieter spot. We've seen a baptism. The last couple of weeks, we've seen people who want to make public their faith. And the symbolism, the Bible tells us, is it's a burial. The old person is dead, and the new person rises to new life in Christ. Next week, we'll see another one. But let's close today as we praise our God because He made us worthy.